It's November 22nd, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Pursuit of style is often a fixation for many aspiring photographers. When a photographer has developed a certain level of technical proficiency, and they begin to think of themselves and their work as something marketable, the question of what defines their work, their style, arises. For many, it can begin with emulating the work of successful photographers they admire, but hopefully it doesn't end there. For others, it becomes a launching pad of self-discovery where a photographer can discover his or her own unique voice. Today's guest, Dan Winters, is a photographer whose work is both admired and also heavily emulated. But his uniqueness as an artist isn't limited to a lighting technique that can be easily copied, but an approach to the portrait, to the still life, to the illustration that is rooted in very personal passions. Technique can be copied, and often is, but vision, that elusive and sometimes indefinable quality, is what makes a photograph and the photographer something exceptional. Such is the case with today's guest. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dan Winters. Well, Dan, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm really excited that we finally worked out our schedules to, to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry, it's been kind of a little hectic trying oh. to get hooked up, but I'm glad we are already now. No worries, no worries. Um, why, why photography for you? I mean, there you know, have you have various interests and various talents, but what what does photography provide you that you know some of the other arts don't? Well, there's several things. I mean, I think on some level, at least in my work, you know, photography offers me the opportunity to uh, experience, you know, locations, people, situations that I probably wouldn't be uh, able to do or experience if I was in a more solitary uh, form of the arts. You know, I do a lot of uh, illustration work and, you know, that's me sitting at a desk drawing or it's me in my shop building and I love, love having that time and I love, you know, my darkroom time, but there's something about, you know, going out shooting and having that kind of fluid experience that's always been really attractive to me. I used to kind of joke around, um, and I still on some level kind of hold on to this, and that was, um, you know, I really, really was in love with the darkroom process and continue to be uh, really, really connected to the darkroom process, and I used to kind of joke around that the reason I go out and shoot pictures is so I have something to print. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there, there are a myriad of other reasons. My first exposure to photography was even was before I'd ever shot a frame of film. It was, uh, it was a darkroom, uh, exposure by a, uh, a friend of the family who was a instructor, uh, photography instructor. He was a combat photographer in Vietnam and he had a, he had a darkroom at the house and I'll never forget him taking me and his son in there and, taking us through the whole process and that experience of seeing the print come up the first time is really always magical. Whenever anybody's out at the studio and I, I, uh, you know, if it, if it comes up in conversation, I always ask if they've ever seen a print come up in the dark room. And, uh, several times when 
when people have answered no, I've actually like mixed up chemistry and uh, done a photogram of their hand or put an agony enlarger and made a print just because I feel like it's such a special thing to at least experience in your life. You know, and I know it's that experience is kind of fading, but there's definitely a, a real magic to that that I that I really have always loved as well. So I suppose that would probably be one of the other reasons. Um, you started when you were studying. You were you started studying photojournalism, and then you actually worked at a newspaper out here in California. Um, mm-hmm. But you've been known primarily for your for your portraiture. Um, how did were you doing portraiture from the very beginning, or did you find yourself sort of getting more of that work, and that somehow translated into your great body of your work being? Well, when I was working for the paper, a part of that was, um, a very significant part of that actually was uh, doing portraits, you know, uh, whether it was for lifestyle pages or if there was a feature on a, you know, local politician or, you know, there are, you know, many, many situations that, uh, that uh, working for the paper called for doing portraiture, as well as, you know, spot news, as well as sports, you know, features, photo essays, all kinds of stuff, even product stuff. So when I started looking at uh, magazines when I was a kid and really, you know, always kind of viewed magazines as a, a portal into a world that I hadn't experienced, but, you know, I was informed by the publications that, that were out there, you know, I realized um, that portraiture is a huge part of uh, magazines because a lot of the you know, stories they run are about people and about what people are up to and, you know, current portraits are always, you know, needed and, uh, you know, really enjoying doing that stuff, um, on the, you know, on the newspaper really prompted me to kind of really start looking at portraiture as a, as a really viable way to, to work consistently. And there was a lot of great stuff being done in portraiture in magazine portraiture specifically, uh, back then, you know, it's like early to mid eighties, uh, Greg Heisler was doing these unbelievable, you know, photo essays for uh, Life and Sports Illustrated, portrait generated, but really deviating from, you know, what historically had at least heavily modified from the the, the form, you know, using lighting and composition and and uh, you know situation. He was you know doing large format infrared stuff and just all kinds of amazing, you know, black and white infrared stuff. I remember he did a photo essay on the, uh, on the Olympics. And I guess that would have been the 88 Olympics, uh, for sports illustrated. And he shot the whole thing four by five infrared, but it really didn't call its attention to itself as being infrared. There was just this really surreal quality to it. Uh, and, uh, I was really, really inspired by a lot of the work that was going on in the eighties. You know, there was, uh, it seemed like the individual voice was really, uh, was really being rewarded. And, uh, rather than kind of the school of photography, you know, I think a lot of magazines for years had sort of an aesthetic that was sort of predetermined and photographers were, would come into that magazine setting, you know, whether it was life or geographic or sports illustrated or Esquire or Rolling Stone. And, kind of adhere to a set sort of photographic aesthetic and kind of in the mid eighties we saw, even though, you know, well before that Pete Turner and Eric Miola and Cherevkov, you know, a lot of these guys were really, uh, you know, had these sort of individual voices and certainly, you know, Penn and Abaddon and there's a long history of that, but in editorial photography, you know, specifically stuff that was dealing with 
you know, news or actor portraiture and stuff like that. You know, there was like the real individual voices kind of being rewarded. And, you know, I'd go to the newsstand and look at the magazines and, you know, even when I was working at the newspaper, I really, really wanted to be doing magazine work. And the portrait work I started doing when I was working at the newspaper, um, was really inspired by what had been going on in magazines. You know, I was using electronic flash, you know, portable flashes, Normans to, to go out and light my portraits. And, you know, I was trying to do sort of magazine quality or, you know, magazine looking, uh, work for the, for the newspaper. And it just, you know, just seemed like kind of a natural progression for me to go into portraiture, you know, also realizing that, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a market for it, you know, and, and as a photographer trying to figure out a way to be viable and relevant and also, you know, pay the bills. I think it's important for us to try to look at, you know, where we can accomplish that. You, you talk about a time, I think, when you were when you were in New York where you would call up friends and ask to, to make their portraits and you would spend a couple mm-hmm. of hours with them. Mm-hmm. Was that, was that the time where you were starting to develop um, an approach to portraiture, not only in terms of lighting, but in your in- interaction with, with your subjects? Well, you know, shooting friends, the pressure level was a lot lower. Although, you know, I kind of get, I, I was I was really trying to kind of emulate what a real situation shoot would be when I was doing those shoots anyway. You know, I was, I was lighting, I was giving myself, you know, not necessarily time constraints, but I was working on working efficiently. Um, you know, initially I was working without an assistant. And when I first started shooting for magazines, you know, I was doing jobs without assistance. I was doing travel jobs where I'd fly by myself and, uh, shoot the job and come back. And, you know, my kit was really small, you know, it'd be a hot blood bag that I'd carry on and a couple of check bags and a, you know, a tripod tube or a tripod bag actually at that time. So, you know, it's like a couple, three or four, cases really manageable um but yeah i think uh, i think that was really a big help and i think more than anything those pictures that i started making in new york before i started working for magazines i was really consciously trying to make pictures that could fit into magazines you know that were strong and striking and graphic and you know interesting and you know lit i was really really interested in lighting and really interested in the way you know a situation or a scene or individual could be lit and uh, kind of transform it a little bit. You know, there's a big aspect of magazines that have to do with, you know, creating a lure. You know, it's been a big part of fashion since it started. And I think also with portraiture, you know, kind of a larger than life figure is, uh, is really kind of, you know, rewarded in society. So the idea of, you know, really kind of making iconic images, but yeah, I would say that, uh, that early stuff. And I think what it was too, it was a kind of an extension of a couple of things. One, it was an extension of the stuff that I was trying to do when I was at the newspaper. And when I was in New York, I was just finding more interesting subject matter, you know, a lot of friends and, you know, artists that I would meet or met along the way and people that were kind of on the same path. I was, you know, kind of wide eyed and had come to New York to try to make our way from a lot of different walks of life, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I do think that that was uh, that was definitely a step forward with regards to kind of honing a sensibility and kind of trying to you know create a voice. Definitely, you know, a lot of your images has a certain style that I have seen emulated by 
um, other people, particularly students. Um, mm-hmm. But I've heard you say that that it's more important to to develop a sensibility rather than a style. Um, what what is that sensibility for you? Well, I think you know there are a couple things that you're talking about when you say you've seen the work emulated and. There was a time uh, early on in my career that I was uh, I was really interested in kind of pushing the, the the frame, and I was really interested in kind of coming up with this you know lighting setup for doing color work because uh, you know color work's really difficult to do, and I kind of came up with this way of working in color that I really I really felt worked well for me and for the way. You know, I, I guess ultimately in my whole career, I've just tried to make the kind of pictures that I like. You know, it's like I want to make a picture that I like to look at, and it's neither here nor there because it's so incredibly subjective. But um, so I started doing things that were like really specific with regards to lighting. You know, pretty high key, pretty compressed ratio, um, compositionally. You know, kind of pushing the frame, the edges of the frame, creating really symmetrically framed images, really utilizing you know the subject and the frame, kind of so that they were connected and uh, using really deep focus so that uh, everything was sharp. You know, I just felt like, you know, out of focus backgrounds work great in black and white, but unless you're very careful, they can really fail miserably in color because you start to get that out of focus color and you're not really sure what the palette is. But if it's it's sharp, you know, you can really discern like, what you're looking at. And it's just, you know, it's just stuff that I, you know, I was kind of playing with. And, and yeah, I have seen a lot of that stuff. You know, I, I kind of joke around sometimes with my assistant saying, you know, like, if I make a picture like this, I'll basically be, like, knocking myself off at this <laughs> point because I've seen it done so many times. So I try to keep, you know, keep evolving with the work. But I think what happens as well uh, with, you know, assignment photography specifically is, you know, it's compulsory that you come back with an image. And I think, you, you know, you create a toolbox and you create a kit that you take with you and a way of working and an idea of, you know, what you're reacting to. I guess ultimately when you talk about sensibility, I think what you talk about is forming an opinion or forming a relationship with, you know, the three-dimensional world. Uh, that informs the way you create, you know, two-dimensional images. So, you know, I think there's an awareness that accompanies that in terms of, you know, starting to be conscious of what you're seeing, what you're thinking about what you're seeing, how you're seeing it applied to your work. And the more you look and the more aware you are, the more you can start to formulate, you know, a, a working method. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess sensibility for me ultimately would be like kind of a, a an opinion that's formed. You know, you form an opinion about about your surroundings and about the way you respond to to uh, to your surroundings, and it becomes. I guess it, what it does is it starts to transcend. You know, the tools that you use for any given situation. You know, Greg Heisler. Uh, I remember Greg Heisler had a had a talk that he used to do, which I, I really loved, and it was called um, The Appropriate Response. And that always really stuck with me because, you know, the idea of, you know, as an editorial photographer and assignment photographer specifically, um, you know, one has to determine what the appropriate response for any given situation is. You know, you can't apply a set of 
techniques to every situation and have it be appropriate for the situation. And as a assignment photographer, I feel like it behooves you to be as diverse as possible because, uh, A, the amount of work that's going to be coming your way will increase greatly if you have a lot of diversity. And, you know, for me, it, it, uh, it is a lot more stimulating to, uh, to be kind of solving a lot of different problems. Does that um, go ahead. Does that sensibility, you know, that dependent on that, on that sensibility tied into having a sense of confidence so that you don't fall back on those two and tried, tried, tried and true techniques that, you know, work, well, the thing about that is, too, you know, uh, you, I think you've heard me talk a little bit about uh, about having a having a plan A going into an assignment, which is very important. You know, you really got to have kind of an idea of what you want to do. A lot of times, you know, having done it for so many years, sometimes my plan A is very loose, you know, kind of going in and, you know, I've been asked before by magazines, like, what are you going to do? And a lot of times, you know, I can't even imagine what I'm going to be confronted with. And so, you know, I've done it enough to really be confident that I can go into any situation and figure out, uh, figure something out, you know, make, figure something out that works. And so um, a lot of times I just, I think awareness is a big part of it, you know, going in and just being aware and really looking at it and, you know, making a determination of what's going to work the best photographically. You know, there are things that work and there are things that don't. And I'm, the more you do it, the more you start to realize that, you know, this, these doing this and using this background and using this type of thing for me, don't make the kind of pictures that I like. And so you kind of, you start to, you know, kind of hone what you're uh, what you're looking at and what you're doing, but you know I think style a lot of times can be uh, based a lot in artifice. Um, you know, I mean, I can shoot one day on a scanning electron microscope and shoot one day, you know, large format lit portrait, and I feel like in some way those two images are tied together. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of the diversity. And you know, if I use like an analogy from, you know. Um, painting or drawing, you know, I think, you know, 35 millimeter street photography would be kind of, you know, sketching with pencil. And, uh, you know, you kind of go all the way up the range, you know, you're doing large format, lit, very intricate stuff. Uh, You know, it's more like oil painting, you know, it's very meticulous and much more involved. And uh, so in in a large way, you know, our tools and films, that we choose, you know, determine to a certain extent, you know, what the picture's going to look like. I think about photographers that have had uh, a really discernible look. You know, I think about Abaddon a lot and uh, the idea of him making those portraits and, like, for example, in the American West or some of those portraits. And, you know, they're you know, the rebate was like a big part of those images and it really allowed those images to have a really graphic nature to them that, that, uh, I guess ultimately that, you know, showing that film edge told you that that was all there was. And in, on the, on the planet, this is the thing I chose to show you that day. And that's always kind of really stuck with me. And I mean, I kind of came up with that analogy, but for me, it's always been, kind of an important one um, because, you know, it's not what you include as much as it is what you exclude. You know, you go into a situation, a lot of times you can make an amazing picture in the corner of a room, 
that is, you know, a really uninteresting place. And sometimes, you know, the subject will come in and you'll be in this huge environment and you have this little intimate thing set up. And sometimes, you know, you'll be met with questions about like, well, God, you have all this, you know, everything here to work with. Why are you, why'd you choose this? And then you can show a Polaroid and, you know, suddenly they're allowed to see a little bit, you know, what you're seeing. So, yeah. Is there been any point in, in your career, um, where you've had to deal with a conflict between making an honest portrait and making a flattering one? Well, you know, I guess, you know, the range of human emotion is so great that, you know, an honest portrait could almost be any, any kind of variation of it. You know, I mean, there's beauty in everyone and the beauty and reverence that, I have for other people, I think comes through oftentimes in my pictures. You know, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I don't have, you know, ulterior motives. When I accept an assignment, I, uh, I usually base it on whether or not I want to photograph the person in the first place, you know, and if it's someone I'm really not interested in or, you know, I'm not interested in visually or politically or philosophically, I usually just turn the assignment down. So when I get an assignment and choose to do the assignment, I, you know, I, out of respect for the other, for the individual and out of reverence for the individual, you know, I try to, I try to make something that's honest and at the same time, you know, beautiful. I mean, you know, I want the image to be a beautiful image. And I think, you know, I deal with actors a lot in my portraits and I deal with, you know, a broad range, you know, scientists, writers, poets, you know, it's pretty, pretty big range. Um, I think just the reverence, I, I suppose, would would be the just determining factor whether or not the picture the picture was an honest one. But you know, there certainly is you know the the fact that you know at one point I realized in my career that if you if you don't you know I think a lot of my portraits are really odd sometimes you know and in in kind of a good way. But I also feel like they're reverent. But I do know that you know I've made a lot of portraits that were kind of steeped in flattery. And I think that's once again, sort of a, a way to keep working. You know, I think that you start making pictures that aren't flattering of personalities uh, that are in the media, that are in the news, that are repeatedly in the news. You know, you start not, you would probably start to, you know, not get those assignments or not be approved by publicists or not be approved by the person, you know, oh, I hated that picture he made of me. You know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to shoot with that guy again kind of thing, you know, so that could be a factor. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're not sort of tarnishing your, your uh, income at all. But, you know, I try to, I try to be flattering and at the same time, you know, make something that's genuine and sensitive and reverent. I like the word reverent for portraits. I think it's, uh, I think we need more of that reverence for, for people and for their, their own experience and their own path and the way that they're represented. It was interesting when you were here at Art Center doing that demo for the students and watching you work. And uh, I was very intrigued by how a quiet a process it was. Um, mm-hmm. That it was probably reflective of what many of your shoots are. And I think you've talked about the fact that you don't have music, you know, th- you know, thrumbing the walls and all that other stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's a portrait sitting and I'm, and I'm wondering, did you come to develop that way of working? Um, because it afforded you a greater degree of control. Was that part of it? 
Well, I think I think less control and more the ability to focus and for the subject for you know in order to establish a connection to the subject rather than have um, a circumstance or set of circumstances that cause not necessarily a rift but cause you know uh, possibly like a barrier or a uh, uh, an element of disconnect and I think you know when you start talking about when we talked about like you know loud music and you know kind of jumping around I mean A my pictures aren't really conducive to that and that's by design so I don't allow that and I like, you know, and I think when that demonstration it possibly came out that it's a, it is quiet and it's intimate, it's methodical, and you know there's a need to stay connected to the subject while you're working through the te- technical uh, aspects of the shoot. So, you know, I think it probably works on on many levels. But for me, also, you know, I just I like quiet. I like to be able to concentrate, and I like to tweak, and I like to you know have quiet conversation with people I'm working with and I think it probably comes from all that but um you know the, the I you know I do like musical my shoots but I like you know putting on like Coltrane or Miles Davis I actually have a couple records that are kind of my standard uh, my standard shoot records you know relaxing with Miles and and is probably my favorite and it's not necessarily my favorite record at all I think my Desert Island record would probably be Love Supreme but but uh relaxing for some reason just you know it just works so well Herbie Hancock's on that record and I talked to him actually about putting that record together uh, at one point when I photographed him because I like that record so much but I find it to be an incredible an incredibly not hypnotic but very consistent the sort of the tone of it is consistent all the way through and I think it's really it's really helpful at times to have kind of have that element but you know in order to do really precise work and to make kind of quiet pictures which is what I like you know the setting I find wants to be quiet as well and, and sometimes you know that has to be explained you know to the subjects you know I think that uh, you know their experience of my shoot is based on you know experiences of shoots in the past that they have had and if that was the kind of experience that they'd had in the past you know they may have the idea that that's what a photo shoot is and um I kind of like to let them know early on that, you know, I want you to just relax and think of this as kind of a relaxing experience. I don't have any expectations of you, you know, jumping around or coming up with any material. You know, I'll talk you through this. Um, and uh, I just try to keep it like an open open communication throughout the whole throughout the whole experience. And what was interesting in seeing you light was, was not so much where you were throwing light, but where you were taking light away from. I think mm-hmm. most of the time you were spending um, there was 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 making these choices in terms of where you didn't want the light to be, mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. really, that, that was uh, fascinating for me, and I think it was for the students who had an opportunity to see you do that. Mm. Yeah, I um, I've taught several times at at Santa Fe workshops in the past, and and uh, done other sort of lighting related demonstrations or you know, discussions and at Santa Fe, uh, I've, I've done demonstrations before with clip lights that we, you know, we bought at Home Depot. So you, uh, you know, you go to Home Depot and you buy, if I, this is actually funny. I just shot a, I just shot a, um, a piece on, uh, 
Dre and Eminem in Hawaii uh, about two months ago for Interscope. And basically they wanted, you know, Em and Dre were recording in Hawaii together and they wanted a document of that. And uh, it was kind of an open-ended usage, usage thing. You know, there's no specific usage in mind at the time. It's just, you know, they wanted someone to photograph it. And I'd worked with both of them before. And Dre many times, and, you know, we've always gotten along really well. So, anyway, Interscope hired me to, to go do that. And, you know, I wanted it to be kind of fly on the wall, raw, as kind of pure as possible, and try to just document their process while they were going through it. So I... I just took a bunch of 3200 ASA film in my contacts, uh, my little contacts G2 and a uh, X-Pan and uh, went there. And when we got in, went to a Home Depot and bought a clip light and some flat white spray paint and spray painted the inside of it white and bought a 200 watt bulb and a 100 foot extension cord. And I just shot and I had my assistant follow me around with that light. And it just pumped up the light that was in the studio enough to where it looked really naturalistic. But, you know, that's all overhead light, so it's really not really great light. But I didn't want to light with strobes. I didn't want to set things up. I just wanted to work. And, uh, you know, it can be incredibly simple. You know, and I, I've done really beautiful, really intricate lighting with clip lights before just to show that it's not, you know, the latest light shaping tool from Profoto that's, you know, making this picture. It's the idea of you looking at what's going on being aware of what's going on and kind of making decisions based on looking at it. So when I've had, you know, and there's a, I think there's also a, you know, I like electronic flash. I love it. I love to shoot strobe. Uh, I love to shoot, you know, available. Like, you know, I'll go out and my favorite thing to do is to just go out with my Hazi or Rolly and, and just shoot for myself. Just available at Tri-X or Plus X or actually, I guess not Plus X anymore because that's gone. But, um, but, uh, but, uh, having having um having the ability to actually look at the light and i know that there's a there's a tendency i think or for young photographers early on especially to have a real fear of electronic flash it's this kind of great mystery and i know i certainly had a great fear of it or you know an understanding or i guess a lack of understanding of it which you know made me form an opinion that i actually didn't like it and you know, I don't like strobe. I don't, you know, I like shooting with available light. I like shooting with hot lights because I can see them. But the more you work with strobe, you know, you start to really understand. You start to understand light, what it's doing. And it's a, it's a wonderful tool. I mean, you know, I 90 of my commercial shoots, probably 99% of them are lit with electronic flash. And it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great way to work as well. So I think it's just, you know, getting in there and looking at what's going on and, you know, making determinations. A lot of times I'll light with, you know, two bare heads, you know, no, nothing, no grid, no, nothing on there. And I'll just use flags to control, you know, where the light's falling, where it's going. But, you know, I use, I'll use tons of different things. Once again, it's like the appropriate response, you know, huge octobanks or, you know, the mini octas, the two and a half foot octas, bare heads, grids, you know, umbrellas. I love umbrellas, beauty dishes, you know, it depends on, you know, what the situation is. You know, umbrellas are hard to use outside when it's windy, you know, beauty dishes work way better. They're heavy. They work better than banks. So, you know, a lot of it's kind of determined by, you know, what your, you know, what your circumstances are, but I think lighting in general is looking at it, looking at light, looking how light falls on a face. I remember the realization that, wow, you know, there are certain things that work on faces and certain things that work on certain kinds of faces. And, 
you know, it's not, you know, it's not one lighting setup that works always. You know, I, I have some ways of lighting that I really like to light from that I've kind of, you know, developed as a part of my repertoire, as it were, you know, not that I've invented it, but, you know, folded it into kind of the way I like to work and modified it slightly to suit my own tastes, but it doesn't work all the time. You know, there's not one way to work, you know, I'm thinking of like Joyce Tennyson's pictures that she was doing in the, in the eighties and nineties of, uh, you know, these alabaster wafy kind of gamine, uh, models, uh, nude in, uh, in this, particular type of environment with a certain background with a certain kind of lighting, you know, eight by 10 Polaroid, you know, and if you put all those things together, you would get that kind of picture. And for me, that's kind of, I think what we talked about earlier is that style, you know, that's something that's dependent on a certain set of tools and a certain type of setting and situation and approach that makes a certain kind of picture. So, if you said, yeah, I love your pictures, I want you to go out and shoot, you know, 35 tracks, you get a totally different kind of picture, even though it's the same person taking it. And you certainly don't get the picture that that person maybe is known for using that tech, that approach. But uh, anyway, I'm deviating from the lighting question. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it all has to do with looking at it and really, you know, understanding it, looking at it. Um, and have an experience with it. Really, you know, lighting is it's kind of a life lifetime of work and it I, I hopefully it constantly evolves, you know. But once again you start to talk about the toolbox, you know, there are certain things that work and there are certain things that don't. And oftentimes, you know, incredibly simple I love really simple lighting or you know, it's complicated but I don't like for it to look really complicated. You know, I like you know, stuff that looks very sort of open and simplistic. How is your passion for for your street photography? Um, influence the way you shoot, the way you see, the you know, the way that you you use a camera. Well, that's an interesting question because in my mind, when I work, I really compartmentalize uh, my body's work, and so I'll have um, a certain mindset that I adopt when I'm shooting certain subjects uh, with certain. Uh, approaches. And so when I'm in the street photography mode with my Hasselblad or my Roloflex and I'm walking around or 35, you know, I definitely address the body of work that it's going to go with. And so I shoot a certain way. I think all of my experiences photographically inform kind of one another, you know, regardless of the way that I'm approaching the subject and what the subject is. But I, I really feel like, you know, I, I was really always really inspired by Harry Callahan's, you know, path, and uh, and he, you know, he photographed a lot of different ways, a lot of different things, and they all felt like they were totally connected, but they were very disparate. And he worked for his whole life on, you know, a lot of different bodies of work, and they were distinctly individual and yet very sort of proprietary. And he, uh, you know, later in his life, you know, you saw these collections of photographs that had been made over, you know, sometimes over, you know, quite a long period of time. And there was definitely a conscious decision that was being made when the work was being generated that this fits with this and this fits with this. And, 
you know, I, I approach things that way. You know, I know that when I'm out shooting street, I know that, you know, A, this fits with the New York project or this fits with the American City project or this fits with the walking around photographing project or, you know, in my head, I'm working right now with a good friend of mine from New York who, when he and I lived there, he and I both, he still lives there actually, but when we were both there in the 80s, we, we met right when I, Right when I moved there, we met, and we we're both really passionate about. You know, I think you go through phases where you, uh, where you kind of adopt the working method of one photographer or another in order to, you know, kind of figure it out and then move on. And I think all those experiences also inform, you know, the way you end up taking pictures. But, you know, I remember early on, you know, thinking I was Cartier Bresson, and you know, I, <laughs> I remember early on thinking I was Ansel Adams, you know, trying to work that way just to sort of figure it out, but. You know, at that time, Kevin and I, Kevin Amers his name, we were uh, really, really looking at Winogrand and Eggleston and Friedlander and uh, Todd Papageorge and Meyerowitz, you know, all the street photography they had done in, in New York in the, in the uh, 70s and uh, really, really inspired by that work. And then also, also, you know, my photojournalistic background was inspired, informing it on some level. Kevin went to RISD, so he, you know, he'd come up with these different projects that he was working on within, you know, the New York milieu. You know, he was photographing cars as they were coming out of the Holland Tunnel with the strobe, and he was photographing actually that he, he had worked out this method where he'd stand at the, out the, uh, the, the end of the Holland Tunnel as the cars entered Manhattan. You know, it's kind of this no man's land down Tribeca, and he'd, you know, cross a couple of three lane highways to get to it, and he'd stand there with a big Mets strobe with an 85 on his Nikon FM2. And as the cars would come out of the tunnel at, you know, 50 miles an hour, he'd pan with them and fire. And he he had already pre-focused because they were in a lane, and he could figure out you know where the focus was. Plus, he was lighting with a you know pretty powerful strobe, but it that it had a fairly short duration. And he was panning, so he was uh, he was freezing these these uh, you know passenger compartments of the cars as they would go by, and he had no idea what he was getting until he processed the film because you couldn't see it. You know, it was so fast. And the, the results were just mind blowing, man. Arguments. It was amazing. The stuff he would get was so incredible. So, uh, and, and, you know, he did a lot of other street photography and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I started a dialogue with him last year about, uh, I was actually in the city and we, you know, we go out shooting, uh, when I'm in the city together and, you know, we walked, I think from Soho across the, uh, Brooklyn bridge and into, into, uh, Dumbo and Williamsburg and just shot on the street. And then we walked back and it was, it's wonderful. You know, just to have that, that's, you know, I guess it's, it was probably the end of last year when we did that. No, it was actually this year. It was probably near the beginning of this year in the spring, I think. But, uh, you know, keeping that passion and keeping those sort of experiences uh, as a part of the process for me still um, is really, really important. But, you know, Kevin and I, I, I think, you know, I definitely was the catalyst here because he'd put all his stuff in storage and he's a black and white printer. And so he, he um, basically he prints for a living and he didn't really ever do anything with that body of work that, you know, we, he and I kind of co created or created at the same time anyway and um so he's dug everything out of storage now he's editing and i'm editing all the 35 
and uh, we're going to do something with it together, probably show it and maybe make a couple little limited edition handmade books. And it's just like a great, you know, reinvention and re-experiencing that time and looking at what, you know, I was looking at then and applying, you know, 20 some odd years to it and kind of being fascinated at some of the stuff I was seeing, you know, I'm finding things that I never even marked, you know, I never marked up on the contacts and marking them up now and wondering how I missed it, how, how on earth did I miss it? And then seeing things that I, you know, I was, I'm really surprised I saw at the time as well. So, you know, that, uh, I guess that's a long winded answer to the, to the question of how the street photography influences the other photography, but I think it's all, it's totally interconnected. Yeah. Cause it's, it strikes me that, that even though they seem like two different types of photography, both street photography and the portraiture, at least your approach to portraiture is so much about being absolutely present because neither mm-hmm. can be, you know, achieved to the level that you, you, that you bring to, to, to the craft without being able to be absolutely present with everything that's happening around you so much so that you're able to capture that fleeting unique moment that appears in front of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a great, there's a great short story uh, that actually in the late sixties, uh, Antonioni uh, did a film called blow up and uh I know David Bailey was a technical advisor on it, and uh, it's a pretty amazing film. I think it should be, you know, compulsory viewing for anybody that wants to be a commercial photographer, for sure. It's a pretty great film. But in the film, uh, you know, the photographer sort of does all kinds of stuff. You know, it starts out with him in a mental institution, photographing kind of surreptitiously, and, and he goes into this whole fashion photography world that he lives in, and kind of this amazing journey and you know it's a murder mystery and there's all kinds of stuff going on it but it's it's very 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 loosely based on a maybe three or four page short story called blow up that you know it's pretty easy to find i have it in an anthology that i picked up somewhere but um it's one of the best descriptions that i've ever read of the process of photographing or the experience of photographing i think that anybody that's started a photographic journey has had this revelation and that is when you really start to look you really start to see and it's a really unique photographic experience and I remember having that it's very revelatory you know I remember just starting to see things and you know when you're trying to see things you're really they start to present themselves and you know they were always there you know, it's amazing how many unbelievable photographs happen today that weren't recorded. You know, they're constantly, it's constantly happening. It's constantly happening. And, you know, it's our job or our passion or our, you know, life's work to to show those. And so there's an awareness that's implied, you know, in the photographic process as well. So it's just, it's essential to the process. But yeah, when you're out on the street, you're aware of what's going on in a way that no one around you is, you know, or a few people probably around you is, are. There's a, there's a quote that you said. Um, it says, you remember not for what you do, but how you make someone feel. Um, and I was yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> go ahead. I, I was wondering whether you were speaking about the people that you photograph or whether you were speaking about the people who look at your photographs or, or both. 
I think it, it goes way beyond that. I think it goes, it addresses, you know, the way that one lives a life. I'm trying to think of, you know, that was a paraphrase of a quote by a, a poet that, and I'll, I may think of it here in a minute, um, yeah, that my wife actually, no, actually a friend of mine told me, uh, had said that the first time and I've, I, it really impacted me and I've always really tried to, you know, keep that to a mantra to a certain extent. But um, the idea that, you know, I, I, I think ultimately, you know, reverence for other human beings and uh, being mindful of your thoughts, words, and actions throughout your life probably inform the the relevance or the significance or the success of your life more than any, you know, photographic endeavor or any other kind of external endeavor, you know. So I like I like the idea that, you know, kindness and awareness and relevance or reverence factor into a life. And so, you know, outside of a photographic context, you know, that would imply that, you know, kindness uh, is a huge thing. And when I talk about, or when that quote or that saying talks about, you know, it's not what you do, it's how you make people feel. You know, I think that oftentimes, you know, egocentric photographers, which, (laughs) you know, photographers, you won't find a, well, you, you, you actually will find the kinds of egos that exist in the photographic world in every kind of, in every world and every endeavor. But, you know, photographers definitely have a pretty high opinion of themselves. And I think to a certain extent, I said that just to kind of keep things in perspective. You know, I mean, for God's sakes, you know, we're not solving world hunger here. We're making pictures. Although some pictures I'm sure have helped to solve world hunger and suffering. And, you know, mine don't, I don't think, you know, mine sort of highlight the, the human form and celebrate it to a large extent. You know, I mean, there are 40 journalists out there that are, you know, actively affecting the way people are perceiving what's going on in the world. You know, I don't think my pictures do that as much. I mean, in a quiet way, I think a lot of my personal work does in that, you know, it maybe, it maybe shows something to someone that they wouldn't have seen without me showing it to them. I was listening to an interview with uh, Richard Avedon, and he would ask about any regrets that he had. And, and one thing he said he had regrets about was how he was as a family man, as a husband, and as a father. Mm-hmm. And I know, and excuse me if this question is a little bit too personal, but I think I'd heard you say that one of your reasons why you moved to Austin um, was part and parcel so that you could have a family life, so that you could be there for your for your son and I think a lot of people don't think when they think about someone who's accomplished um, as much as you have uh, you know as, as an artist they assume that that um, you sacrifice uh, a good amount in order to achieve that level of success and I'm wondering how your choice particularly to to move down to Texas and spend time with your son sort of factored in and, and what influence do you think it, it had in, on your life and not just your work well, that is definitely not too personal of a question because I'm really proud of that, and I'm really proud of that decision, and I'm really proud that I had that real- realization before, you know, before it turned into a regret. And I think that when he was very young, uh, I was not present as much as I probably should have been because I was really, you know, chasing down the dream, nose to the grindstone really trying to, you know, make money and get established and get a name. And there was a point where I had a realization that this was a fleeting thing in my life, you know, that he was growing, you know, he was going to be gone at one point. And, um, I was thinking about the thrill that I had when my dad would show up, 
after work and he'd come home and when his car would pull into the driveway, I remember the excitement of running out there and I remember all the things I learned from him and all the things he taught me and and I really wanted to to create that environment and you know, I had a studio in Hollywood for ten years and did a lot of work there and you know, he was a big part of my life and I, he always has been, but I really I really felt like, you know, I wanted to make that my, my priority in life. And I think that, you know, my family life is, my, my photography and my, my work is definitely secondary to my, to my family life. I make, I make a lot of decisions based on how long that's going to take me away from my wife and son. Um, you know, I like to do a lot of illustration work now. You know, I've been doing a lot of drawing, a lot of collage, and a lot of uh, construction pieces because they allow me to stay home. And, you know, I'm at home today drawing a few illustrations for the New York Times, and I've been home all day, and, you know, I've been able to help Dylan with some schoolwork and, you know, hang out with him and his friends, and, you know, Cap will make lunch, and I'll have a studio at home, like a drawing studio, and go downstairs, and we hang out and have lunch and come back up here and do some work. And, you know, those are all conscious decisions. And, you know, we're going to, he's 16 years old, he's driving now, you know, in a couple of years he'll be gone to college, and, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I was really a part of that whole thing. And for me, you know, I think it's been a profound experience. I know that, but for him to have that in his life and to know that, you know, he was unconditionally loved and I did the best I could to be present. You know, I don't want to, definitely don't want to have any regrets. I don't think any picture in the world is, is worth, you know, letting down my son. I feel like that's my primary responsibility, my primary goal, or my primary sort of function in life right now should be, geared towards that 100%. Well, the last question uh, I ask is I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone that you've long admired or recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why? Well, uh, you know, there are probably a couple that I would say have really profoundly, profoundly affected me. And I would say that Frederick Summer uh, is uh, is definitely pretty close to the top of the list. And I think it really speaks to the idea of exploration. You know, I look at kind of creative processes being like analogous with maybe climbing a tree. You know, you can climb the tree and you can scurry up the tree to get to the top and you can also go out on every branch and kind of explore every branch and see what's out on each one on your way to the top. And that exploration, I think, is a part of the way your work develops and your sensibility develops and your aesthetic develops and your, you know, the spiritual connection that you have with your work develops. And I think Frederick Summer, you know, over his life, you know, he worked, he worked in Prescott, Arizona his whole life, and he did you know, collage and photography and he did photograms, you know, cameraless images and he did portraits and he was a incredible explorer with regards to, you know, an artistic process and and all within, you know, a very short distance from where he lived. You know, he was able to do all this amazing work and uh, you know, he was friends with Max Derns too. I'm a huge I uh, admire of Max Ernst's work, you know, especially collage work. You know, I do a lot of collage work, and Summer did a lot of collage work, and and uh, I've I've really really loved his work. I think one of the most, I don't know that he's really underrated, 
But, you know, one of, I think, honestly, one of the most amazing American photographers of the 20th century was Bruce Davidson. If, uh, you know, obviously the the uh, stuff that he shot up in Harlem was just mind-blowing, but the stuff he did, the Civil Rights Movement and uh, the Brooklyn Gang series that he did, all of which were, I think, uh, all three of those books were, uh, were published uh, by St. Anne's Press, here within the last maybe 10 years. And when I look through that work, I am just stupefied by, you know, the, how prolific he was with the work and how just completely intuitive and in tune with the subject he was and how gentle and respectful and non-judgmental he was with that work. And I think that if you made a, if one made a conscious effort to really look at that body of work, you know, it's, it's unbelievably impressive and just really, really, really beautiful. And, you know, I don't hear him mentioned with the, you know, you do, you know, but I, you know, I, I think when all that work was presented to me in, in, in those bodies of work, when St. Anne's released those books is really when I had the realization of like the breadth of the work it was really like an amazing discovery for me. Uh, Emmett Gowan loves his work so much. Callahan and Siskind and, you know, God, it, the list is huge, you know, but a lot of uh, early century stuff, Robert Frank, obviously, Winogrand, Louis Freelander, Eggleston, all the kind of, you know, great to that. You know, Stieglitz, probably, if I could, you know, own one photograph, it would either be Snowstorm, New York by Stieglitz or Eleanor in the Water by Callahan. You know, it's probably my two all-time favorite images. But uh, anyway, that's probably a little more long-winded than you needed. But <laughs> those are some great suggestions, and I just want to thank you again for for making time for me today on this on this Sunday afternoon. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have a chance to really sit down and talk with you and uh, and to learn more about you and your work. All right. Well, I appreciate it. It's nice. It was a good experience for me. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandoredframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandoredframe.com. You can also join the worldwide community of photographers by joining our groups on Facebook, Twitter, and Flickr. Links for each can be found on the website. Until next time, this is Ibarian X. Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.